The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. It's so good to be together as we worship together. And so would you join me as we pray and ask the Lord for help? Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a good, good God who is mighty to save And so we ask now this morning that you would work in and through the preaching of your word so that some would find saving faith this morning in Jesus. And then unite our hearts together as a new community that has been created by Christ himself. So unite us so that we would be able to minister to one another for your glory and for your purposes. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me open by reading Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. And then you think about how that verse connects to where we're going in our passage this morning. I'm going to read Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Do you see how that verse connects to where we're at in our passage this morning in Acts? In our passage, it says that the people are cut to the heart in verse 37. So the question we have to ask is, who or what has pierced them through? And as Hebrews 4 tells us, it's the razor sharp living and active word of God that is wielded by Jesus Christ himself, the living and active word, and wielded by the Spirit through Peter's preaching that morning. It pierces all the way through so that they're cut to the heart. They're totally exposed. Wickedness has been revealed. Their hidden intentions of the heart are now on full display. Cutco or Wistoff or Shun Knives have nothing on the razor-sharp, living and active Word of God. And it's a stunning, stunning admission by the people that they don't harden their hearts at Peter's indictment and pick up stones. Because a couple chapters later, Stephen stands up and preaches, and a very different result takes place. They pick up stones And they stone Stephen to death. So it's a stunning reality that these people say, we're cut to the heart and the question left hanging in the air is, brothers, what shall we do? Brothers, what shall we do? The crowds not only have heard Peter's indictment of them, you crucified the Messiah, but they receive it and say, you're right. We did. 
We crucified the Messiah, and this was the risen and exalted Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers, what shall we do? And that's what our passage seeks to answer this morning. And it's a question that's relevant for all of us this morning, is it not? What shall we do? What are we to do when we get corrective lenses put over our hearts and we see Jesus clearly? We see him as he ought to be seen. And we're convicted of our own sin and of our failure of not following him, not living up to his perfect standard, not obeying his commands. And we ask the question, what shall we do? And that's what our passage answers this morning. And it answers it by showing us that the preaching of Jesus results not only in salvation, but through that preaching, it establishes and forms a new community that's centered around Jesus. The Spirit and Jesus working forms and creates and establishes this new community that is Christ-centered and reflects the beauty and the majesty of Jesus. The gospel not only saves, but it transforms and establishes the church. And my desire for us this morning is that the unbelievers among us or watching online or come across this sermon years from now, that you would find saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then for all of us who are trusting in Jesus this morning, that we would be and embody the beautiful picture of this Christ-centered community. Because in a world of polarization, in a world of division, in a world where we can fight over almost anything, And it's so unusual to see not just 3,000 people united. It it would be surprising to see 30 people united on their views. And you can just name the issue. We want to be that living embodiment of the church of Christ. So this passage is broken up into two main sections. The gospel produces new lives. We see that in 37 to 41. And then the gospel forms a new community in 42 to 47. Produces new lives and forms a new community. So first we'll begin with the gospel produces new lives. We've already talked about this statement. They were cut to the heart. This is the only place in the New Testament where this word appears and refers to a sharp stab of emotion. Peter's preaching brought about conviction. Instead of rejection, we see contrition. And then Peter answers them and gives them the four essentials of conversion. Two actions and then two results. We see repentance and baptism in the name of Jesus. And then the two results, forgiveness of sins and receiving the Holy Spirit. These are the four normative ingredients of conversion. It's like if you're making chocolate chip cookies. You have to have flour, sugar, butter, and chocolate chips. And if you're missing any one of those, you might call it a cookie, but it's not a chocolate chip cookie. Some of us are using kind of almond flour or coconut uh, oil instead of butter. That's not a chocolate chip cookie. You've got to have butter and sugar. 
can't use stevia. We'll, we'll, we'll stop on the chocolate chip cookie. So it is with conversion. You have to have these four essential ingredients. So let's begin with repentance. This means that we're to turn away from sin and to turn to God. Peter calls them to repent not only of the sin of failure to live up to God's perfect standard, but the rejection of Jesus is what crucified Jesus The rejection of Jesus is what led to the crucifixion of Jesus. They did not recognize him as the Messiah, as the Holy One, as the anointed one sent from the Father. And they rejected him and it led to his crucifixion. Whether they had a hand in hammering the nails or not, they crucified the Messiah. And so he calls them to repent, to have a genuine sorrow for their sin, to turn away from sin and the turn to God. In our current culture, the hardest part of evangelism today is convincing people that they are lost and that they need repentance. The hard part of evangelism is not telling them that God loves them and that God would like to save them. They say, of course, of course God loves me. I'm so lovable. The hard part of evangelism is convincing people that they have fallen under the condemnation of the God of heaven and earth. They don't even think it's offensive anymore for you to consider that they need to repent. They just consider it ridiculous in our culture. It sounds so arrogant to suppose that you have a monopoly on truth and that you think I need to repent of my sinfulness. The hardest work of evangelism is convincing people the bad news of the gospel. And the only way that ever happens is the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we see in our passage this morning. When their hearts could have rised up in anger. How dare you say that about me, Peter? And pick up the stone. They're cut to the heart and he calls them, repent, repent. Secondly, he calls them to be baptized. It says in verse 38, Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. I want to highlight six things about baptism. This would have not have been sort of the Jewish ceremonial dippings in the pools that they would have done for ritual cleansing. This is not a bath. He's calling them to be baptized. That's first. Second, this is commanded by Jesus himself. In the Great Commission, he says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, doing what? Baptizing. Third, it's to take place in the name of Jesus. Last week, we saw everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. And I think he means the name of Jesus. And then later in Acts 4.12, he says, Peter says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Number four, it's a public sign of initiation into the church. Baptism signifies our public declaration that I'm with Jesus. My allegiance is to Jesus. Number five, it's to show that we have been brought into union with Christ. The act of baptism portrays that 
we and Jesus have been brought together in this profound and mysterious way. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 6, he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were what? We were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Baptism is a living sign, a living portrayal that we have died with Christ and that we've risen with him because we've been brought into union with him. And then number six, baptism is not required to be saved. Paul writes in Romans, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The criminal that confessed Jesus before he was crucified, that was crucified next to Jesus, he didn't ever get baptized. Now, I want to make a case this morning for all of us to be baptized if you're trusting in Jesus this morning. And I'm aware there are many, there are some among us who have never been baptized because you might be a little bit embarrassed or nervous. Like, I don't want to be up front and have everyone look at me. It feels a little bit intimidating. Uh, I'm kind of an introvert. Or, or maybe you, I, I just don't want to get all wet in front of everyone. It just feels kind of odd. And, and I just want to very gently ask, are those good reasons to disobey the Lord Jesus Christ? Are those good reasons to disobey the Lord Jesus Christ. An unbaptized believer is an anomaly. An unbaptized believer to the apostles would have been inconceivable. It's like a fish out of water. But some of you might say, but you just told me it's not needed for salvation. It's not salvific. So do I have to? And what I want to say is baptism is where you get to where you don't have to, you get to experience the unspeakable joy of standing before people who love you and say, I have died with Jesus and I've risen again with him and all my life I will worship and follow him. It's where you get to do that. It would be like a young woman who has just gotten engaged, showing off her beautiful diamond ring, and she says, do I have to have a wedding? Do I have to get a dress? Do I have to have the ceremony? Can I just skip the ceremony? Because, you know, I, I can just go down to the justice of the peace, and it would still all be true, right? And to that, we would say yes, but I just don't know too many women like that. Uh, the newly engaged couple says, we can't wait to celebrate our marriage. They spend tons of money and go way over the top to celebrate this reality that has just taken place. Baptism is the joyful reenactment of the best thing that has ever happened to you, being saved by Christ. And in the same way that a wedding is not just for the couple, it's for the community. Baptism is not just for you, but it's so that we might have the privilege of looking on and celebrating with you to say, oh, how good is God in saving you, redeeming you, bringing you out of death into his marvelous light and into his kingdom. It's not a have-to ritual. 
It's a you've get to ritual. And, and, and for any of you wondering, we do have an upcoming baptism class on March 5th and 6th. So let me encourage you, if you've not been baptized and you're following Jesus, to look that up and follow up. Now, the first result that we get is the forgiveness of sins. There is sometimes some controversy over the connection between baptism and the forgiveness of sins, the way that you read it in this passage. And a literal reading of the verse would be, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus on the basis of the forgiveness of your sins. So having your sins forgiven is the evidence so that you should become baptized, which is why every person who gets baptized here at Bethlehem, we go through an interview, and we want to find out if you're trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And then when you're down here, the very first question we ask is what? Are you now trusting in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins and the fulfillment of all of his promises to you, including eternal life? Now, the second promise we see is that they receive the Holy Spirit. So this is further elaborating what Joel has already prophesied. He said, this spirit, it's going to fill all flesh. It's going to be poured out on all people. But not just this 120, but it's going to be poured out even on these 3,000. What they get, this gift of the Spirit, this promise, is the indwelling power and presence of God. Now, in verse 39, it says, For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. This promise that's referenced here is the gift of the Spirit. It was cited in Acts 2.33. And what he's saying is that this Spirit is not just for you, not just for us, not just for this 3,000 gathered, but it's for your children, it's for your descendants. It's for the nation of Israel, all those that God will call to himself, who will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not just that one moment in time. It's that pervasive reality so that this morning, every believer who's trusting in Jesus has received this Holy Spirit. And again, he highlights God's divine action in saving everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, in verse 40, Peter says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. What does that mean? It goes on to say that Peter exhorted them with many other words. So these aren't the only things he said. There's a lot more preaching and admonishing and exhorting. But here he says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Deuteronomy 32.5 has a very similar phrase of a crooked and twisted generation. And I think the logic goes like this. In those days, in Deuteronomy 32.5, there was a generation that saw the strong arm of God himself lead them out of enslavement in Egypt. And what did they do? They crossed through the Red Sea, and then they rebelled. They rebelled after seeing the most stunning display of God's work of salvation and deliverance and they rejected him, and so they wandered in the desert and died. That crooked and twisted generation. And now, these original listeners of Peter, they are the generation that has seen God's truly greatest gift of deliverance and salvation in the person and work of Jesus, the very Son of God. And what did they do to him? They crucified him. 
Save yourselves from this crooked generation. To flee from wickedness and to follow Jesus is to go against the grain of society of an entire generation. And for us this morning, to believe in Jesus, to say that you're a Jesus follower at your work, at school, in your neighborhood, is to take a stand against our society and its broad rejection of Jesus and his teaching and his ethics. Today, we live in a world where sin is celebrated. And if you don't celebrate it, Amazon will cancel your book. It will remove you from their platforms. Big tech will remove you from their platforms. And the government will compel you to obey. What was once considered good and right and moral now must be disavowed and censured and rejected. And so if you're following Jesus in this life, in order to be well-liked and to have an easy life, I have bad news for you. And yet, if you're following Jesus, because you have been cut to the heart, and you've seen with new eyes that this is the risen and exalted Lord Jesus Christ, and he is the only way, truth, and life, then you will never, never, never be disappointed in following Jesus, no matter what happens to you in our broader culture. And this, this is a truth we're going to have to take to heart in the coming years, brothers and sisters. So get ready. We have a risen and exalted Lord, and you have nothing to be afraid of. The gospel saves and produces new lives conformed to Christ. So I'm praying this morning, if there are some among us who are not trusting in Jesus, some watching, not trusting in Jesus, we pray that you would be cut to the heart by the power of the Spirit and by his word and that you would see That you need to ask the question, what shall I do? I feel the guilt and condemnation that rightly lands on my soul. What do I do? And we pray that you would repent and call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Now, turn with me to 42 to 47. The gospel forms this new community. 3,000 get saved. The church grows more than 2,000% nearly overnight. And in Acts 2, 42 to 47, we get this first summary statement of this new community. We see four commitments and three results. The four commitments are the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. And what I want to do is just walk through those four commitments and then look at the three results of those four commitments. This is the rhythm of life for the early church. First, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What's taking place is the apostles see 3,000 people come to faith, and what needs to happen? Discipleship. They, they, They believe, but they need to know what they really believe. And so the apostles are spending their time teaching, telling them, this is what Jesus has done. This is what his life looked like. This is how he was born. This is how he died. This is how he was resurrected. This is how Jesus taught us to read the Old Testament. This is how he ascended into heaven. And this is how you should read your Old Testament now. 
And, and so this took place probably in, in the synagogue as well as in homes. There's just teaching going on. They're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, which means that they're continuously listening to it in order to carry out and apply this teaching. And I just want to apply that for us this morning real briefly. Corporate worship and the gathering of the church is essential to our faith. Corporate worship and the gathering of the church is essential for our faith. Now, I don't want to unnecessarily wade into controversy, but maybe I will just a little bit. I want to hold up the high value of gathering together as the church. And corporate worship is where we gather together as the people of God to hear from his living and active word. This is where we come to hear Jesus speak, where we get to pray together. I was just in a prayer meeting at 815, and to hear these saints pray makes my heart sing and encourages me in my faith. It's where we receive communion, where we receive teaching. This is not optional, and these are not non-essential activities. And this pandemic has tested our commitment to gather together as the church. I believe it's wise to protect the vulnerable and to take necessary precautions. But I just want to call us to not allow the fear-mongering of our media keep us from worship and fellowship. And I I recognize we have differently calibrated consciences on mass and social distancing and everything else. But what I mainly want to highlight And I believe that Christians can land in different places on those things. But what I mainly want to highlight is that we should not neglect meeting together as the people of God. Many of you are aware that there's a pastor by the name of James Coates of Grace Life Church in Edmonton, Canada, has been arrested and jailed for holding services that do not follow their local government health guidelines that restrict worship to 15% of capacity. And I'm not going to jump into all the details of that, but I mainly want to highlight it as an example that while we have different guidelines here, there will be a time when all faithful churches and all faithful Christians will have to wrestle with we are under a government and Our first allegiance is to Jesus Christ. And there will be a time for all faithful Christians and all faithful churches where we will have to say whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Our first and primary allegiance is to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just get that straight in our hearts, and then we can work out all the details of what that looks like in your workplace, what that looks like for us as a church, what that looks like when different restrictions come down. But we need to get our hearts right where Jesus sits on the throne, not only in the heavens, but on the throne of our hearts. And we will pay a cost to follow him, whatever it takes. Christians around the world risk life and limb to fellowship together with fellow believers. And so I just want to exhort us to not let go of worshiping together with others in the church so easily. I looked on our registration this morning. There are spaces 
for 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock in the sanctuary and in the chapel. So if you're watching from home and it's reasonable and appropriate for you to come back to church, we are waiting with open arms. We would invite you to come. And if you're visiting, you're watching, we want you to come if it's reasonable. And we understand that there's others where it's wise for you to stay home. And we just want to hold that with open hands. But I just don't want the church to slowly trickle away and abandon one of the primary means of grace that the Lord Jesus Christ has given to us. Teaching, fellowship, worship of the church. Second, they devoted themselves to fellowship. This is the word koinonia, which means to share with someone in something. And, and yet they're sharing in values and beliefs, but they go further. In verse 44, it says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. So what's taking place here is that the people of God are so united. They're, they're so filled with the Spirit. They're, they're so joined together in love and affection for one another that they're caring for each other. They're not just spending time together and developing friendships, but they're saying, you have a need, I want to meet it with my own stuff. It's a sharing of lives and of things. This fellowship is because of the shared salvation obtained by Jesus. It's the beautiful picture of the early church coming together to meet the needs of the community. Now, in verse 45, it says, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Just want to notice that this is voluntary, occasional, and motivated by their care for others. And some would make an argument for communism, that we should abolish private ownership, or others would say socialism, where the state owns everything. And I just don't see that in these verses. What I see is a community that is so centered around Christ, so united by the Spirit, that what overflows is generosity and a true care for one another. That we see a need and we meet a need. They didn't sell everything, but they used their possessions to serve and benefit others. What they do is they begin to see one another not as blood family, but as a blood-bought family. In the same way that I would never let my parents not have their needs met. He says, you shouldn't let your brothers and sisters in the church not have their needs met. And, and I just want to highlight, one of the ways we do that here at Bethlehem is helping hands. Every first Sunday of the month, when we take communion, we receive a second offering that you all give to, and none of that money goes into the budget, but it goes to serving others who have a need. And you know what? I, I don't think that fund, at least in all the time that I've been here, has ever dipped below zero. It has always had enough money to meet the needs of the body. And so if you, this morning, watching from home, if you have a need, please, please, please call the church office. We want to meet your needs. And that's not the only way. I imagine that in a church this size, we're going to hear of things, we're going to know of things where others are in need, and we're going to say, why not me? Why not me in going to meet that need? And I just commend that to you this morning. And I'll highlight one other thing. We, we have a team right now that's partnering with the Ralph Reader Food Shelf up here on Highway 10. And, 
and they go around, I think every week, and they drop off groceries for those in need here in our community who aren't part of our church, and they're doing it in the name of Jesus, dropping off groceries. And we partner with Ralph Reeder every Thanksgiving, and I know many of you give to them as well. I I just want to highlight how generosity overflows from the hearts of those who have received much in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not coercion. It's not let me squeeze you and try to get as much out of you, but it's look how blessed we are in Christ Jesus. I live a thousand miles from my family, but I have family here in this room that I know if I said I I need something, there there would be dozens, hundreds of people who would meet my need. And I just pray that we would do that for one another because we are the blood-bought family of Christ. Number three, they're breaking bread. Now this could refer to the Lord's Supper or to ordinary meals. And, And I think It's referring to ordinary shared meals, but they're regularly remembering Jesus' death and forgiveness and the establishment of his new covenant, even in those shared meals. And so it wasn't mainly just about the food, though the food was part of it. There's something unique when you're sitting across from one another, sharing in delicious food that someone has labored to make. There's a unique fellowship that takes place there. When someone invites you into their home. And yet there's this sharing in Christ. Sharing in mutual encouragement and conversation. And it elicited in them joy. Verse 46 says, And day by day, attending the temple together, and then breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. The source of gladness is what Jesus has accomplished So that we're all spiritually rich. Even if you're not monetarily rich. We're all spiritually so rich. And then we can share in the overflow of that fellowship with one another. And I would just encourage us. Make that a regular rhythm of your life. To invite people over so that you could share in showing hospitality and receiving hospitality. Few things are as sweet when people who don't know each other, who are very different, come together because we've been united by Jesus and we break bread together and we say, tell me your story of faith so I can celebrate what God has done in your life. Number four, the people devoted themselves to the regular practice of prayer. In 46, it says, and day by day, attending the temple together. So they're, they're probably praying together in the temple, praying together in the home. Later on in chapter 3, verse 1, there's, there, there's prayer that's taking place as they go up to the temple. So prayer is one of the essential activities of gathered Christians. And so I just want to commend to us. Find a way to pray with fellow believers. In your small group, In your Sunday school class, we have a prayer lab class that's taking place right now. There's a Sunday morning prayer meeting at 8.15 that anyone is welcome to. We have a first Wednesday fasting and prayer time here at the church. You can find out information about all of these things. And I want to ask the question, is prayer a priority or is it an afterthought? Is it the first instinct or is it the last instinct when nothing else has worked? And then I would just encourage us, find all the practical ways and tools that you can to grow in your prayer life. I use this app called PrayerMate, M-A-T-E. 
I think it's like comes out of the UK, and I can input everything. I can list all my elders. I can list a number of congregants. I can list my family, my small group. And then every morning, it prompts me and says, pray for these seven or eight or nine things. And then I pray through them. And I would just encourage you, find a way to make prayer a regular rhythm of your life, and then be on the lookout. After church, you see someone who, whose eyes are a little bit glistening, and you say, can I pray for you? What's going on? How sweet would that be if that was all of our instincts? Yes, we love praying with you, lining the front. But I know num- a number of you don't like coming up front. These lights are bright, so turn to one another and pray. Because this is what we get to share in. When you come, you're not an audience. You're participants of the people of God. The three results. So we saw the four things. Prayer, breaking of bread, fellowship, teaching of the apostles. The three results are fear, favor, and faith. In verse 43, an awe came upon every soul. That could be translated fear. They're transformed from being perplexed and bewildered to standing in amazement of Jesus. The second is favor. Verse 47, they're praising God and having favor with all the people. This incredible spirit-formed community is so united. You can't find 3,000 people in the world who agree on things. And yet here we see it. The Spirit has so united them that we begin to hear the fulfillment of John 13, 35. By this, the world will know that you are my disciples when you have love for one another. And the people are seeing the love they have for each other and they're saying, I want that. That's what I want. Oh, that we would live that out here in this body. And lastly, faith. In verse 47, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. God is doing the work of saving even as they continue worshiping and gathering and caring for one another. And so would you just add that as part of your regular prayer request for the church? That God would do a work of saving week by week, day by day, that more and more people would be ushered into his kingdom so that we would have to say, we need to plant another church more quickly because we have an overflow of people. Pray that God would move in that way. So as I close, if you've not responded to the proclamation of Jesus Christ as the risen and exalted Lord and Christ, it's not too late. Today is the day of salvation. We just want to call you to trust in Jesus, that you would be cut to the heart and that you would come and receive the infinite joy that comes in believing in Jesus, that you would repent of your sins, be baptized, receive the forgiveness of sins, and then receive the indwelling power and presence of the Holy Spirit. You will never regret it. And what we have witnessed is not only the saving grace of the gospel of Jesus, but the transforming grace that knits us together to be a spirit-formed community that is centered upon the person and work of Jesus. And I'll just tell one story to illustrate this. It was maybe two weeks ago. I was driving south on 35, just exited the 10 onto the 35, and I'm exiting to come here to church. And it's one of those really cold days, and I lose control of my car 
and I'd get turned around, and I'd hit the side, and there's that little pond at the bottom, and thankfully I don't go down the pond. Um, And I can see the church in the distance. I can see its front doors, and yet here I am alone. And, and, and it's, I forget what day, Wednesday morning. And so I call Ben Catterson, and I say, can you send a couple of strong guys? Because I can't get my car out, and, and it's going to save me 150 bucks from the tow truck. And so Ben gathers four guys, and they all come with shovels and their strong muscles, and we push my car out, and I get going again. I think that illustrates we do not exist to be alone, not to run off into the mountains, to do life by ourselves. We exist to be the family of faith, to minister to one another, to help each other. And when we hit a rough patch and we spin out of control, that we call one another back. We are the church. This is a beautiful community. This is not our community. This is the community of the Lord Jesus Christ that has been formed by his spirit. And so let's live out and embody the beauty and the majesty of this community so that a watching world would see it and they say, I've never seen something like that. I want that. I want that. I trust that we are and I pray that we would all the more. Let's pray. Father in heaven, do that glorious work in our midst. Would you be pleased to save Would you be pleased to transform and to make us more and more into the likeness of Jesus so that we embody the beauty of your blood-bought, spirit-formed community centered around the person and work of Jesus. Cause our hearts to overflow with joy and gladness and generosity even this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Five five four one five. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.